Hey everybody, I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we are checking out Sandman issues 24 and 25. That is the middle two issues of a storyline called Season of Mists. That's right. So where we had left off... Basically, Morpheus decided to go back to hell to rescue his ex-girlfriend, Nada, who he had condemned there back around the beginning of time. Out of pride and dickishness. Yeah, and it was pointed out to him that he had been a dick by his sister-brother, Desire, and so he decided to go fix that, and he thought he was going to have to fight Lucifer, but instead, Lucifer had a surprising proposition. Yeah, he shut down hell, threw out all the damned and all the demons... And gave Morpho the key. That's right. So Morpheus is now Lord of Hell in addition to in addition to his other duties. Proud owner, one hell. <laughs> Alright, so we pick up here with Sandman number 24, Season of Mists, Chapter 3. Written by Neil Gaiman, pencils by Kelly Jones, inks by Pete Craig Russell, and hey, we've got a cover by Dave McKeon. I don't think we've seen this inker before. I think that's right. Pete Craig Russell. It doesn't really seem like he distinguishes himself that much from the style of the ongoing inker, though. The regular inker, which I think was Malcolm Jones III. That's right, that's right. There's some wild face action in this issue, as we're going to see. I attribute that to Kelly Jones. Yeah, I do Wild too. face action is a pretty consistent feature of Kelly Jones' art. Well, let's talk about this cover. As you mentioned, it's by Dave McKeon. We got a snake eating a guy. <laughs> so there's a man here that's bound up in the coils of a snake, which has got its jaws open over his face. It's an unpleasant thought. And we're going to find out what that's about very soon. We also have the text, in which Lucifer's parting gift attracts unwanted attention, and the Dream Lord receives unwelcome visitors. Yeah, that's kind of deceptive, since he does actually welcome them. That's a good point. But we're getting ahead of ourselves once again. Now, did you think that this guy looked sort of crucified? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, this is not an accurate representation of the Snake Man situation in the book. Yeah. And well, it's definitely more Christ-like for it. Okay, so page one, the very first narration box informs us that we are in Asgard. That's right. We have Odin here in his hall waiting for news from his ravens. I was not actually sure that this was Odin. It took a while for him to be called by that name. Well, he is definitely the Lord of the Aesir and the Gallows God, the One-Eyed King of Asgard. And here he's basically wearing a sort of rustic tunic, white shirt, an old, raggedy... You might even call it a wide, blouse. Uh, ...wide-brimmed hat. Yeah, and the wide-brimmed hat is going to be the visual trademark by which we continue to recognize him throughout this story arc. And I really like this. His ravens are named Hugin and Munin, Thought and Memory. And we are told that at his feet, two wolves attend him. Lacking thought and memory, he could not even name them. That's right. I thought that was a cool idea. His, his ravens are not just, like, his agents, but aspects of his being. And without them, he's unable to fully function there. Literally, his thought and his memory. Right. It does say here, uh, the mead he drinks is the mead of Odin the All-Father, and none but Odin may drink of it. And we see him drinking of it. But I didn't know if that was supposed to be, like, maybe foreshadowing that yeah. it wasn't Odin. So, oh, I see what you mean. It turned out that it was. 
Now, this is, so. if I'm not mistaken, the meat of poetry, brewed by dwarfs from dead Kvasir's blood. Basically, a guy had stolen the meat of poetry and drank it, so they caught him and ground him and made his, his blood into the new meat of poetry. I see. A draft of liquid verse and madness, we are told. Now, he doesn't have to wait long before the ravens do return, and he has found out some news that is of great interest to him. There is a cavern beneath the world. This is true. You must know in your bones that this is true, although all logic argues against it. We find ourselves in a different setting here, the cavern, and we see this great plinth of stone thrust up in an otherwise empty cavern, and above it is a long stalactite, and wrapped around that is a very big snake. Yeah, could you explain to the listeners what a plinth is? Uh, it's sort of an outcropping of stone. In this case, we have basically a platform that's up on a pillar of stone, and there's no real way to access it. Just right. a circular platform in the middle of space. In the cavern, there is also a woman and a man who is tied up. The woman's name is Sigyn. You may recognize that name from Norse mythology as the wife of Loki. Right. We are told the woman is called Sigyn. The snake has no name. And the man who is tied up is bound with the entrails of his son. Their son, the woman, is his wife. Right. Now, the snake has its mouth open and venom drips from its fangs, and the woman catches it in a bowl, but occasionally the bowl fills. She has to pour it, and when she does, the venom falls directly onto the face of the man bound here, Loki. Right. And whenever it hits him, he uh, screams and writhes, and whenever he writhes, we are told, the earthquakes. Right, this is a pretty accurate representation of the way that Loki is left at the end of the Viking sagas. Not so much how he's left at the end of Thor Ragnarok. Not, no. <laughs> the situation there is a little different. <laughs> a slightly less vengeful adaptation. Now, this immediately brought to mind, of course, American gods. That's right, in which the Norse gods are major characters. Well, especially Odin and Loki. Yeah. And it seems that Odin is watching. We see that wide-brimmed hat. The man, the woman, the snake, the bull. It's not nice or pretty, but it's true. And it's necessary. It has been going on for a very long time. Yeah, as Odin is going to say in about a page or two here, Loki is too clever and too malicious to be left in any other manner, basically. Odin orders the snake to hold its venom and Loki basically expects that he's here to gloat of having bound Loki some millennia ago. Yeah, now, it's interesting. Loki refers to Odin as his blood brother. That's right. They apparently mingled their blood some time ago, which made Loki an honorary Aesir. Right, they swore an oath on Ymir's bones. This is different from the version of Loki with which many people will be familiar who is Odin's adoptive son. That's right, that's right. So, as I understand it in the original myth, more or less, and I am basing this largely on Neil Gaiman's own book of Norse myth, which came out, I think, earlier this year. It's quite good. Loki yeah, not is, long ago. Loki is not an Aesir. He's something else from somewhere else, and nobody's really quite sure what and where. But he is Odin's blood brother. Right. I also note here he is referred to as Loki Skywalker. So, Luke's brother, I guess. 
He's also Loki wolf father, since he's the father of Fenris, the wolf that will destroy the world. Yeah, now, this is kind of a sidebar, but isn't Loki also the father of Hela? I think that's correct. But not in Thor Ragnarok, where he's the brother of Hela. That's right. Loki's three children are Hela, Fenris, and Jormungand the World Serpent. Right. Who is also Fin Fang Foom, somehow. (laughs) Man, that comic is great. (laughs) It's pretty confusing. Anyhow. Yeah, so Loki Skywalker, not the, um brother of Hela, as in the recent film, but the father, actually, which is faithful to Norse myth and also faithful to the original Marvel comics. Right. So basically what we're seeing here is an attempt to be quite distinct from the versions of these characters that exist in the pop culture consciousness through Marvel comics and a bit more faithful to the original myths. Yeah, although I think they also, I think Neil Gaiman takes the opportunity here to poke a bit of fun at the Marvel comics as well. It also again, reminded me of American Gods, because in American Gods, you have an Odin and Loki-centric story without Mm -hmm. the presence of Thor. Yeah. Uh, And Thor will become present here in this storyline, but he's still quite obviously a lesser character. Well, anyway, Odin points out that Loki is supposed to be held here basically until the day that he gets free and starts Ragnarok. So... Loki says, and Odin says, it need not happen, Loki. Yeah, he points out that in Ragnarok, it is foretold that Loki will fight Heimdall and both will be killed. So he has a vested interest in avoiding this just as much as Odin does. Perhaps Asgard will be destroyed, but we can be gone. Asgard is not a place. Right. (laughs) We both saw that movie recently, it was quite good. I think this is the first page where he's actually called Odin, so that's that's confirmed. Now, Loki asks where they can go, and Odin's answer should not surprise you if you've been reading The Sandman. Heck! To the hell of Lucifer. Odin recaps to Loki that Lucifer has disappeared and hell is a vacancy now, so they want it so that they can get out of Asgard and not be subject to their own necessary doom. A doom of their own making. He needs Loki's cleverness to help him get this done, so he takes Loki, and they are gone. Stripped of their function, his lovers wait in the cavern beneath the world. The woman, the snake, waiting for him to return. So, Sigyn is nothing in the absence of Loki. Do you think that's sexist, or just like the way that tales work? It didn't strike me as anything more than just kind of a story. Mm Mm-hmm. Just, this is what she does in the story, so when that's taken away from her, there's nothing else there. Yeah, I mean, it's almost, like, better for her that Loki's gone. She doesn't have to hold a bowl all day. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think they mentioned it here, but in the myth, whenever the snake venom does hit him, he curses his wife for her incompetence, even though there's really nothing she can do about it. And he got himself into this, really. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if only she had two bowls. Right, just kind of set one loosely on the nose area while she's... (laughs) (laughs) Or you can just, like, hold it in an angle so the venom pours off. Put it upside down. Yeah, there are a lot of... There are a lot of better solutions here. Now, the way that Kelly Jones draws Sigyn, he seems to draw a lot of attention to her breasts, and she's wearing a very thin and skimpy shift here. I thought that was kind of unnecessary, especially as she's also kind of unpleasantly thin, Huh, I didn't notice her breasts, actually. 
But you were uncomfortable with the art. Yeah, I thought she was a little too sexified. Fair enough. So that brings us to the title page. We are now in the dreaming, and Morpheus is coming through the door. There's a figure behind him, watching him. He says, I am back, and he is greeted by Matthew, his own raven, who <laughs> gives him an arc, as well as Lucian and Cain. Season of Mists, Chapter 3. Lucian asks Morpheus whether he won. Morpheus says no. Matthew, was there a fight? Did you get the woman you were looking for? Did Lucifer give you any trouble? No, no, and no. Cain asks what happened, and Morpheus just says, I'll tell you later. He's sort of downcast and cryptic and just walks off by himself. Meanwhile, in Asgard, a fearsome brutish man with a mess of red hair says, And you trust him? Odin reassures this man, the Thunder God, that he does not trust Loki, but he does need Loki. So Loki's going along for his cleverness, and this fellow is going along to keep an eye on Loki. Right, and he refers to him as the Thunder God. The man also has a very small hammer in his hand. Yes, he does. Yeah, so this is our version of Thor, and he's drawn in a really exaggerated, stylized way. He's got massive muscular arms and shoulders and tiny little legs. He's got great big arms and hands, but tiny little wrists between them. Yeah, and he's definitely a caricature at this point. He's almost grotesque in the way that he's drawn, mm -hmm. and that'll become more so later on. Well, he thinks this is all a bad idea, but nonetheless, he yokes up his goats and they take off via his chariot, except that Loki seems to be flying behind the chariot. So he's already not keeping an eye on Loki. Also worth noting here, Loki refers to Thor as his cousin, for those keeping track. Right. Thor snaps. I'm no cousin of yours, Loki Wolf's father. And with that, they are on their way to Dreamland. Back in the Dreaming, which is another word for Dreamland, Morpheus is pretty much moping. Yeah, he's in a great sort of surreal landscape made up of weird shapes and furnishings that are unmoored to anything. And he sort of looks like Ian Holm. For a panel here, he recalls Lucifer's last words to him as he handed over the key. Perhaps it will destroy you, and perhaps it won't. But I doubt it will make your life any easier. So, why do you think Morpheus is so depressed about what happened in Hell? Was it that he really wanted to fight Lucifer, or is it that he didn't get nada? I think that he maybe has more idea than we do of what's in store for him as the holder of the key to Hell. Of the consequences of obtaining the rights to Hell. Also, he didn't get nada, as you pointed out, which is... A bummer. Yeah, that's true. He marshaled up his whole thing. He, I mean, he spent an issue saying goodbye to everybody before he went to hell, and it ended up being somewhat anticlimactic, and he didn't even get what he was going there for. I guess also, I mean, Lucifer gave Morpheus a whole speech about how, you know, I perform my duties, but I do not care about them anymore. No more! You know, and maybe Morpheus saw something of himself in that speech. Yeah, although he should be enthusiastic to return to his duties, given that he, you know, just got out of a glass orb where they kept him for 80 years. Yeah, that's true. Well, Morpheus punches a mirror and grits his teeth, and then the mirror is whole again, but Morpheus is now, having given up his cloak 
in black tank top and jeans. Yeah, what happened to his cloak? Did that have something to do with the mirror? What's going on on this middle panel? You know, that appears to be a puff of smoke rising out of his cloak. Perhaps he vanished from it. Hmm. There's also a panel here of him holding his hands over his eyes, unclear if he's crying or just having a headache or what. Yeah. Well, he, he looks much more like Robert Smith than uh, Ian Holm on this page. <laughs> he's definitely lost in thought. This teeth gritted panel is quite a crazy face. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Although they didn't make his lips black, so that was a that was a good decision. Well, elsewhere, we have order and chaos taking an interest in the newly vacant property. Right. In parallel conversations, order is having a discussion with itself, while chaos has a discussion with itself, and both agree that they need to act quickly, and that the Dream King Morpheus will be open to making a bargain, and they each decide to send their own emissary, with Order sending Kilderkin of Order, and Chaos deciding to send Shivering Jemmy, Princess of Chaos. Shivering Jemmy of the Shallow Brigade. That's one of those incredible Neil Gaiman names. I was really amused on this page that they have very different, you know, deliberation processes, but they progress through the exact same sequence of thoughts. Right. Much like, was it Delirium? Mm -hmm. A couple of issues ago, Chaos's text balloons are all sort of rainbow multicolored. Yeah. Order's boxes are gray and sharp-edged. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, there's no color at all on Order's side of the page. It's just black and white. Well, back in the Dreaming Dream stands in his gallery and summons Death for advice. Yeah, but Death has bigger things to worry about. Yeah, she's glad to see him, but she's in a hurry. Look, I have to run. There's a whole can of worms opened up here, and no one else seems to be doing anything about it. I'm doing what I can. The dead are coming back, little brother. The dead are coming back. She already knows that Lucifer turned the damned out of hell. She says, the most desirable plot of psychic real estate in the whole order of created things, and now it's all yours. Shouldn't heaven be better? Hmm, that's an interesting point. They don't seem to think so. I guess God is there. Yeah. Well, he's, yeah, that's right. He, he's always going to be in charge. He's considerably harder to unseat, and maybe he's not so fickle as Lucifer that after a mere few billion years he gives up his job. Right. Although he did in Preacher. Well, he asks her for advice, and she basically just tells him to make his own choice. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's the only one who's doing anything about the dead, so she has to hurry back to it. Well, we flit on to another new place. This is the Silver City. You might be flitting. I'm turning the pages in a very deliberate, premeditated kind of manner. <laughs> we do cover quite a lot of locations and new characters in this issue. That's all I'm saying. So, the Silver City, it is not paradise, it is not heaven. It is the Silver City that is not part of the order of created things. Right, so there is a heaven, but where God resides, or at least where the angels reside, is not part of the order of created things at all. It's yeah. not psychic real estate. Yeah, and I will say, the Silver City looks pretty freaking awesome here. Right, we have this great Silver City floating on a flat platform in the middle of black space with this enormous pillar of white light beaming down on it. Do you remember the Linear Men? You mean Wave Rider? 
Yeah. Okay, yeah, this is a like a fourth world thing. Yeah, I guess so. I mostly know about it through its interaction with Death and Return of Superman. Yeah, and Superman Hunter Prey. Yeah, exactly. But the Linear Men were based outside time at a place called the Vanishing Point. Okay. And it looked sort of like this, except instead of a black background, it was sort of like a yellowish, orangish thing. And instead of a silver city, it was, I think, you know, like stone walls. But So okay. the colors were different, but the idea of like sort of these floating platforms of very vertical structures looked the same. All right. And I think there were curvy dots there, too. This is a pretty cool design. Now, these two angels, simultaneously and without a word, they leave heaven and fly down toward the universe. Yes, and these are Duma, the angel of silence, and Remiel, who is set over those who rise. The inhabitants of the city possess names and identities. Perhaps they possess something we might recognize as free will. Perhaps not. So it's basically left ambiguous whether they actually received an order of some kind or whether it just occurred to them both at the same moment to go do this. Right. I think there's sort of an implication here that maybe God is so in charge mm -hmm. in the Silver City that, that everybody just, you know, they have no real free will. They, it's not even where they need to receive an order from him. They just know the will of God. Right, and they just and they just do it. And it sort of um it sort of goes back to the same idea as we see in Hellblazer mm -hmm. that it's only the war between heaven and hell that gives people free will. Okay. Uh, if either side were to win, then all mortals would be enslaved to them totally. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Speaking of hell, that brings us to limbo, which is not hell. Right. This is where the demons who were cast out of hell have become refugees. Right, and particularly pissed off is Azazel, who appears as a blotch of outer space, a sort of a blotch of blackness with a star field visible, as well as a bunch of mouths. And eyes. Uh, by the way, these mouths are identifiable only by their white teeth, which is a design we've seen a bunch of times before. Is take it time to take a drink? <laughs> it's time to take a drink. Break out that podcast juice. Azazel preaches to the gathered crowd of demons of an opportunity. This time will be different. No longer will we be enthralled to a fallen angel. No longer shall we be vassals of some shifting triumvirate. This will be a new hell, a forward-looking hell that recognizes individual worth, in which a demon can raise its head or any other important member high and say, this is my land, and no one is ever going to take it away from me again. Yeah, and the other demons cheer, Azazel! And then he immediately names a new triumvirate. <laughs> well, not exactly. Azazel says that he's going to the Dreaming to get Hell back, and he's going to bring two people with him. People. Uh, two demons with him. The Merkin, she whose womb spawns spiders. A Merkin is a pubic wig. And Karanzen. Yes, now we remember Karanzen. Yes, who fought a duel with Sandman in the now classic Sandman number four. Yeah, and it has been pointed out before, Karanzen is a tall, pink-skinned man with two mouths, one atop the other. Until the end of time, Princess Azazel, he says. And in addition to his entourage, 
Azazel has a bargaining chip that he thinks is going to win Morpheus over. It's Nada! That's right, she disappeared from hell when it was closed, and this is where she ended up. Also first seen in Sandman issue number four. Yeah, that's right. Still on sale. Pick up yours today, folks. <laughs> it's part of the first trade. They'd probably appreciate the bump. <laughs> so back in the Dreaming, the castle is now on this giant thin spire of rock that keeps anyone from being able to reach it. Yeah, and somebody named Eve tells Matthew that Morpheus only puts the castle up there when he's expecting unwelcome visitors. Yeah, so Matthew is Morpheus's raven. He also spends time with Eve. Now, this is more or less the biblical Eve. This is at least Eve, the character in the story from the Bible. She lives in a cave in the dreaming. We see over the course of this scene, she begins as a crone and then progresses through matron and maiden. Should we take a drink? <laughs> Why not? You yes. folks at home can have one, too. Now, this is Eve's first appearance in this book. She is, as we've mentioned before, one of the old DC horror hosts. First appearance is Secrets of Sinister House number 6, 1972, created by Joe Orlando and Mike Caluta. Right, but before that she was created by, you know, God, the author of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. They talk for a bit about Dream's bad mood. Matthew has never seen him this out of sorts, but Matthew hasn't been here very long. Yeah, and... Then we cut to where Morpheus is, and we can see his bad mood for ourselves. He is moping about in his geometric spaces. Now, this is kind of cool. Griffin, one of the three guardians at the gate, has a message for him, and apparently there is a statue of Griffin in the room that he's in, which is able to talk to him here while simultaneously being at the gate. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty neat idea. Griffin interrupts Morpheus's brooding to tell him that there are visitors at the gate. Many of them. Tell them to go away. I am not receiving visitors at this time. Morpheus says in a very Shatnerish manner. <laughs> There's a number of pauses for breath in there. I think this is the first time that we ever see Morpheus with stubble. Yeah, that's a good point. He's basically made a deliberate decision to be unkempt at this point. Yeah, he's not feeling too great. Now, Griffin points out that these are envoys. Some have been here before as honored guests. Some of them are gods. All of them are puissant. Puissant means having great power or influence. Yeah, I was going to say, that's just a word that means strong. So, Dream concedes, and here he's making one of the strangest facial expressions of the entire book in this lower right panel as his face is half cast in shadow and seems to be grinning wildly? Yeah, it seems like he gets a grin over his face. Now, as he gets this grin, he says, let them in, the visitors. Now, Griffin has just asked for the gatekeepers to be lent some of his power so that they can repel the visitors. And the way this conversation went down, I wondered if... Griffin was sort of angling for power for ulterior motives, and this was hmm, Morpheus's okay. response was a way of keeping it from them. That's an interesting thought. Well, we find ourselves outside where Thor is yelling at the gatekeepers, Tell you again, if you do not open this fart-sucking door, then my hammer Mjolnir will smash it into toothpicks. Ha! I am the mighty Thor! <laughs> 
Now, Thor is generally portrayed as mighty, but the mighty Thor is, like, specifically the moniker for Marvel's character. Yeah, that's right. Griffin conveys Morpheus' apologies and lets them know the door will be open. And here we have almost the entire page in a splash showing the vastness of the gate and a huge crowd arrayed in front of it. Not to mention Griffin's two fellow gatekeepers, an enormous red dragon. His name is Wyvern. And a pegasus. His name is Hippogriff. That brings us to two pages where we meet the various envoys here to see Morpheus. An array of cool characters. First we've got the Norse gods, Odin, Thor, and Loki. There's a delegation of Egyptian gods, led by Anubis, also featuring Bast and Bess. There's Suzano Ono Mikoto, son of Izanagi, who is a very self-effacing god. Right, he comes here representing the Japanese pantheon. And then the delegation of demons, which we've already met, Azazel, Merkin, and Karanzen. Yep, and Karanzen looking quite dapper in a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He dressed up for the occasion. Yeah, well, it's, it's sort of a... What's the word I'm looking for? He's wearing it sort of sort of casually. Right, it's, it's, it's clearly wrinkled, and he's, he's got his hands thrust into the pants pockets, even though the jacket is buttoned. It's very shabby chic. Right. Next we meet Kilderkin of Order, who brings with him the incarnation of Order in the form of a cardboard box. I think Kilderkin is the cardboard box. Oh, I'm the sorry. The guy carrying sorry, the cardboard right. box is just his slave. That's right. This is a slave. Kilderkin is a cardboard box. Got it. And then the representative of Chaos. I is Shivering Jemmy of the Shallow Brigade, and I is a princess of Chaos, and I is very important, and we wants hell too. That's what. Shivering Jemmy is a little girl in oversized clothes and clown makeup and is carrying a red balloon. Then there are Remiel and Duma, who clarify that they do not want hell. They are only here to observe. The, the angel's speech is sort of a handwritten cursive look in the speech bubbles. You are all welcome. Enter. Morpheus appears in really snazzy black robes with intricate patterns covering the sort of, what do you call this, the apron piece? The tabard? The tabard, yeah, that's a good word for it. But he is brandishing here the key to hell. I welcome you to the heart of the dreaming. I extend my hospitality to you all. Sweets for you are being prepared, and your wishes regarding nourishment and recreation will be catered for insofar as we are able to provide. You all, or almost all, seek the same thing, this key and what it represents, the empty hell that once was Lucifer's. But you have journeyed far to come here this day. You will be shown to your rooms. Tonight there will be a banquet for you and for any others who may arrive meanwhile. And tomorrow, we'll talk. I have made fun of the facial expressions in this issue. I like this one, as he's got the little bit of a smile. Like, maybe he's looking forward to a challenge here. Yeah, I like the facial expression in the last panel, but once again, Kelly Jones is doing his Kelly Jones thing, where... You know, there's three different panels of Morpheus on this page, and they have three different faces. Like, not yeah. just three different facial expressions, but they look like three different guys. Yeah, that's true. If there wasn't only one guy with his distinctive pale skin and messy black hair, if there wasn't only one guy who looked like that in this comic book, you might be hard-pressed to realize this yeah. is the same character in these three panels. Right, and, and I would say that maybe, you know, Kelly Jones is drawing Morpheus 
as somebody who maybe has a, a minor shape-shifting ability, mm-hmm. you know, to, to change his look with every passing second like that. Except, you know, apparently the mighty Magento, Master of Magnetics, has the <laughs> same ability. You're referring to the Magneto Limited series, penciled by Kelly Jones. Yeah, my first exposure to his talents. Yeah, yeah, so that's a bit of an issue. This is not my favorite issue in this story arc for art, I will say. But we did see some interesting demon designs and some cool some cool Silver City stuff. They made a bunch of weird faces in the conversation with Death also. Oh yeah, her face in the first panel where we see her, I don't know, it looks like an album cover. I don't know what emotion it's supposed to be conveying. Yeah, there's a there is an art style defined by very pale faces without much definition. Sure. Up against like black backdrops and with fashion elements around them. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. In this last panel that she appears in on this page, she's got her hands clasped over her face, which is a face that we've never seen Death make before. She looks really out of her depth. Anything else you want to touch on before we move on? Well, only that Thor used the word (laughs) fart-sucking, which I have never heard before as an insult or anything else, but it kind of reminded me of Corey eating farts. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Gaiman makes sure that we do not forget that Thor is dumb, and Gaiman's Thor is actually awesome. Yeah, dumb and impatient and impetuous and self-important. Yeah, and he's very strong and sort of defined by his strength in an obvious visual way, at least the way that he's depicted here. Right, yeah, I mean, he has big hulking muscles, but carries a tiny little hammer, which, uh, yeah, you know, that's it's a stereotype, that's a thing people say about, uh, well, mm, I see what you mean. You see where, I, where I'm getting I at. see where you're going with this. Yeah, so here we find out, one at least, of the consequences of Lucifer handing hell over to Morpheus, which is that all the other pantheons in the cosmos want to possess it now. Right, and it seems like no matter who he picks to receive it, Morpheus is going to be screwed by everyone else's displeasure that he didn't pick them. Exactly. Not going to make his life any easier. Well, speaking of the consequences of Lucifer's decision, that brings us to Sandman number 25, Season of Mists, Chapter 4, in which the dead return and Charles Rowland concludes his education. Who the fuck is Charles Rowland? We're about to find out. Probably. I mean, you could close your browser window or your podcast app right now and never come back, and then you wouldn't find out. Uh, right. So, Sandman issue 25, Season of Mists, chapter 4, written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Matt Wagner, and inked by Malcolm Jones III. Right, Matt Wagner is probably best known for his series Mage. That's a series in which... And every man discovers he's the reincarnation of King Arthur and fights evil with Excalibur in the form of a glowing baseball bat. Yeah, that series ran throughout the 90s and was recently relaunched, I believe. Oh, interesting. Maybe not with Matt Wagner on pencils anymore. Not sure. Well, so we got a cover by Dave McKeon. We have nine photos of a boy. Yeah, some kid. 
It looks like he's experimenting with different Instagram filters. <laughs> That's right, they're identical photos except for different tints and different shadows cast across them. Yeah, the first page is our title page. This is December 1990, we are told. Now, this issue came out in April of 1991. Yeah, I wondered about that. At first I thought it was just kind of acknowledging that the story was going to feel kind of old-fashioned and anachronistic by telling us right off the beginning, no, it's still the 90s. Maybe also an indication that not much time has passed since the beginning of Season of Mists. Right, that's a good point. So in a cluttered attic, we have a boy, Payne, leaning over another who is feverish, his eyes wide and unseeing. Mommy? No, it's me, Payne. Do you feel any better? Unfortunately, he does not, and the boy lying on the ground asks Payne to hold his hand. Now, Payne has almost preternaturally wide and blank eyes, and he's wearing... What's the name of that hat? God, I don't know. Well, he's wearing a funny little hat, that's for darn sure. Yeah, we can also kind of make out on his page that he's wearing a suit. The other boy is not wearing anything like a school uniform. He's got a red sweater on. So we see Morpheus there. Now, the boy lying on the floor begins to recount a dream, and as he does, we have Morpheus looming over him in between panels. Indicating, I guess, that it was a dream. Right. And the dream involves dead birds trying to fly. Right, first he finds blood-red worms growing out of his arm, and then he runs outside and finds it snowing, but it's not snow, it's the skeletons of birds. And then I saw that they were trying to move, even the ones I had crunched to bits. The whole world was covered with dead birds trying to fly. He asks for some water, but there's none left. And then he notes that Payne's hand is cold to the touch. Well, that's not exactly surprising, is it? No. Sorry. I... I keep thinking I can hear people singing. You can. It's Sunday morning, Rowan. It's chapel service. They're singing hymns. Six days, then. That's all it's been? That's right. Seems like a lifetime. You get kind of a better look at... Pain? Yeah, his eyes are completely white. Totally blank. And his hat is sort of like an Angus Young hat. Yeah, and he's wearing a suit with a patch on the lapel with an H on it. Right, a, a school crest. Yes, exactly. So, on Monday, Charles Rowland eats with the headmaster, alone in the empty dining hall. Everyone else is away for Christmas, but Rowland's father, we learn, is in Kuwait. They're actually eating with a third person. That's right. This is Miss Gribble. And she's making an effort to be nice, but I feel like she obviously creeps out Rowland. We have a panel here of an extreme close-up on her face where she's got kind of a rictus grin. Yeah. And the headmaster seems sort of indifferent, whereas she seems sort of, you know, she's taking an interest in him, which makes him uncomfortable. Yeah. We learn that the reason his father is in Kuwait is that he was taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Yeah. All Saddam's fault, they say. And... Before we leave this scene, we spend a panel on a portrait of the Reverend Parkinson, a previous headmaster. 1901 to 1916. And he either has a ridiculously large chin or ridiculously large straight teeth. <laughs> I think that's his chin, based on uh, what we see of him later. He's a very old man. Now, 
As Rowan walks across the campus, we learn that this is St. Hilarion's School for Boys. Hilarion was a Syrian-born saint known for fasting to drive off carnal temptation. Rowan has been here for a year and a half. He drafts a letter to his father in his head. It was the same letter he had wanted to write for a year and a half and never had. Please, Daddy, take me home. As Rowland walks to the library, the mists in the courtyard coalesce into other boys. And that's very creepy. I also like the line, His father was an architect, a tall, nervous man who designed hospitals. <laughs> okay. So he's reading in the library when Mrs. Gribble sticks her head in. Reading and the Scarlet Pimpernel, specifically. Right. I know there aren't any lights out, Bells, with everyone away, but still, spit spot. Time for you to get some sleep, young man. And we also see as he's reading that a bunch of pale boys are watching through a window. Even when it's empty, thought Charles Rowland, you're never alone in a school. It belongs to all those dead people, all the other kids, the ones who sat at your desk or slept in your bed or ran down the corridors a hundred years ago. They never go away. Even when you're alone, you're not alone. And here we see Rowland lying in bed in a vast, mostly empty ward, except for several of the other beds have ghosts occupying them. Back in the attic, Rowland asks Payne what it was like after he died. Not very nice. I went to hell. I think it was hell. It was like a nightmare. The kind where you know it's a nightmare, but you still can't wake yourself up. It was just corridors. For pain, hell was endless corridors that he hurried down, knowing he had to get somewhere. And he says he was followed by something sad and lonely and terrible. Something that had all the time in the world. Something that he knew was there, but never saw or heard. How, how long did this go on for? What year are we in now? 1990. About 75 years, I suppose, but it seemed far longer. Pain? Yes? I'm... I'm not afraid of dying. You should be. You will be. <laughs> Special guest appearance by Frank Oz for this comic. <laughs> or, uh, if uh, Yoda had had that line in the prequel trilogy, it would have been, Be you will. Yeah, that's true. They really doubled down on the reverse speech thing. I always thought it was just that Yoda was quirky, and then it turned out that I guess that's just how he speaks, or how his people speak. I don't know. It was cool in the first series, and they made it sucky and stupid in the second one. <laughs> that seems to happen from time to time. On Tuesday, there's no breakfast, so Rowan gets a packet of cookies and eats them, alone on a bench in front of a memorial for St. Hilarion students who died in World War I. 1914 to 1918. At lunchtime, when there's still no meals, he goes and visits the headmaster in his study and finds him with an old woman, his mother. How do you do, young man? Very well, thanks. Um, how are you? Dead. I died in January 1942. Upon my death, I found myself in hell. This did not come entirely as a surprise to me. Yeah, so she apparently went to hell for... Uh, sinful practices in the marital bed, which she hated. It's made pretty clear here that it's not so much what she and her husband did as the fact that she believed it was sinful. It seems to have consigned her to hell. Yeah. So this is a nine-panel page. Mm-hmm. Classic format. Yeah. As she recounts her life and her, you know, feelings about it. 
And the art here, I think, is particularly Kelvin and Hobbes-ish. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, we see a number of uh, scary old people in this book, and they generally have the, like, really old, really grouchy caricature that you see in Kelvin and Hobbes for adults that Kelvin doesn't like. Much like you might see on a Tom King page, every panel of these nine is focused on the old lady, except for the last one, which has Rowland wandering out of the room. Now, before he does, she also upbraids her son, the headmaster, for smoking. He says, hmm, Mother, I am headmaster. You are nothing of the kind. Your mother's little boy. That's right, Mother. Sorry, Mother. And she bends over and kisses the top of his head. Can we just talk about the fact that she said hunnish practices in the marital bed? <laughs> yeah, that's the way that she puts it. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah, she didn't get a divorce because she wouldn't tell a judge what she had been made to do. Seeking perhaps some less insane company, <laughs> Rowland seeks out the sanatorium. Oh yeah, I, I liked this too as he leaves. But adults were strange, and he had few criteria by which to judge them. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, so he goes to visit Miss Gribble in the sanatorium, or the San, as she calls it. Which is just the infirmary, it's not really a mental hospital. Well, yeah, if it if it was a mental hospital, it would be the wrong place to look. For yeah. less crazy people. Yeah, unless you were looking for, like, Dr. Deskin or the Scarecrow. Right. They are known to reside there. And sometimes Joker. Now, Miss Gribble has some people to introduce Charles to. Her two children. Yes, both of whom apparently died very young, reminding us of Neil Gaiman's predilection for dead baby comedy. <laughs> hmm. Do you think he overuses dead babies whenever there's an awful thing that's happening Earthwide to show us that it's awful? Here are some dead babies. Well, I think we went there at least once before that comes immediately to mind. In the death-focused issue, right. Sound of Her Wings, number eight. Yeah. Yeah, when one of the deaths that we witnessed was that of a baby. Yeah, so we have here her daughter who died as an infant, and her brother who apparently died significantly earlier. I was only 16, I caught German measles, and... This is the baby's brother, not Mrs. Gribble's. Yeah, she tells the uh, malformed fetus to say hello, and it does. And with that, Charles is out of there. Charles, don't you want to play with my babies? Charles? And we get this panel of him clutching his way down the stairs. Uh, Rowland sleeps with the lights on that night as no one ever turns up to turn them off. And for one panel, he sees the groundskeeper chased across the grounds by a woman and child and never saw any of them again. Back in the attic, he uh, inquires of Payne, Why are you up here? I mean, why did you hide in the attic? Because my bones are up here, in that trunk. See? This is where I died. They hid it here. No one ever found out. He points to a trunk which is sitting on a pentagram. This was where they used to come, you see. At night, trying to raise devils that never came. They'd dress up and they'd do stuff. They'd kill frogs and rabbits and cats. And you. And me. On a Wednesday, Rowland is awakened by three undead upperclassmen. These are Cheeseman, Barrow, and Skinner, who introduce themselves as old boys. 
Very old. Yep, and they're wearing the same school uniform that Payne had on. Now, they're here to give Rollins some help, but before they can, they are interrupted by the arrival of Reverend Parkinson. Yeah, he's calling an assembly. He mentions here that he suspects them in the disappearance of another boy, obviously referring to Payne. They deny any involvement. Yeah, he also refers to Rowland as Live Boy. <laughs> yeah, because the other three are dead. Yeah, now before heading off to the assembly, I think it's Skinner says, We can wait, little bug. We can wait. For those boys before or after my time, he says, addressing the assembly, my name is Parkinson. I was headmaster here from 1901 until my death in 1916, and I am headmaster here today. He has decided, more or less, that since they're all back at the old school, the way he puts it, school is in session. He calls them all evil little boys, and he upbraids a couple of them for the ways that they died. You, boy, the boy Blubbing, front row, what's your name? Mold, sir. Simon Mold, sir. When were you here? I died in 1953, sir. I hung myself, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to, sir. Of course you meant to, you silly little boy. Now stop blubbing or I'll give you something to blub about. He concludes, you are schoolboys. You are at school. You come to school to study. Therefore, you will study. Mensana incorpore mortua, eh, boys? A healthy mind in a dead body. Rowland looks on as though this is very strange, while nobody else seems to think that it is. Two down from him is Payne, who's actually smiling. So, for the rest of the day, Rowland has class with the dead boys. At one point, he is sitting in class and realizes he's the only one breathing. At another point, they all go down to swim, and the water is deathly cold, but he's the only one who notices. And he's the only one who minds that there's no food, which drives him out of his bed that night and into the kitchen. Right, but he runs into the old boys, Cheeseman, Barrow, and Skinner. We're going to make you sorry you were ever born. Three against one's not fair. Fair? What's fair? Cheeseman was killed in the trenches after he was expelled. He was only 17. Barrow and I had already died of diphtheria. Is that fair? We were only kids. We sacrificed a boy, all three of us, to the devil. We did stuff from old books. We did things you wouldn't believe. But when we went to hell, they didn't care. They hadn't even known. They, they laughed at us. That's not what I call fair. All the trouble we went through with the little brat, drinking his blood, hiding the corpse, stealing the host from the chapel, and nobody in hell gave a toss. We burned anyway, just like you're going to, bug. Right, so on the next page we find them in the midst of torturing Roland, holding him against a hot stove and piercing him with a long fork. Eventually, he passes out, and the old boys wander off, reminiscing about boys they had tormented years back. Happiest days of our lives. Now, at this point, he's found by Payne. Come on, old fellow, come on. You've got to get up. Payne carries Rowland up to the attic. There's a panel here where it's the two of the boys set against nothing but a big, just an enormously tall blue door set in a purple backdrop, and it's all done in a very, what's the word? Susian? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say basic, but it's no detail at all. It's just this big, crazily shaped door. Thursday, Rowland spends unconscious, and Friday, delirious. 
His rescuer, Edwin Payne, 1901 to 1914, tended him as best he could. That's interesting. 1901 to 1914 means that Parkinson was his headmaster. Yeah, that's right, which we kind of got that impression earlier. We could have put that together earlier from the fact that Parkinson recognized the three old boys. Ah, yes, that's that's a good point. On Saturday, Rowan wakes up weak and in pain. The burns on his back are obviously infected. Payne offered to move him to the sanitarium, but he didn't want to go. We turn the page, and on Sunday... Payne, have they stopped singing? Yes. That's good. I thought maybe it was me. And then he dies, and Payne closes his eyes. On Sunday, Charles Rowland died. Hello, Charles. Time to go. Perky goth death pops up. Yeah, she's dressed very 80s in uh, this appearance. Yeah, she's uh, dressed for aerobics. Yeah, a headband and leg warmers. Yeah. Roland, his eyes now pure white, asks if Payne can go with them. But Death's not here for him. She took him already. I took him already, Charles, and he's still dead. Now it's your turn. No. If he's not going, then neither am I. He's my friend. I don't have time to argue, Charles. There's too much going on right now. Look, you're coming with me. He stays. Yeah, she reaches out to take his hand, and he turns his back on her in a huff, refusing to go anywhere without pain. There's some neat body language in this panel on the next one, as Death is at first huffy and then kind of has had enough face palms in exasperation as she allows Charles to stay. Yeah, well, I'll pick you up as soon as things are less crazy, Charles. Take care of yourselves. Yeah, so this is basically the only hint that we have of what's going on outside the school in the story, but we see that whatever else is going on, what with the dead having returned, death is run ragged. Indeed. And I'm amused also that she literally runs out of panel here, instead of just disappearing. Right. So what are we going to do now? I'm not sure, but I can tell you what we're not going to do. We're not staying here any longer. Huh? Leave the attic? But we can't. I mean, my bones are up here. Well, so are mine. Not to mention my flesh and hair and stuff, but I don't see why that means I have to sit around up here until she comes back for us. Anyway, I don't feel ill anymore. I feel fine. Dead, but fine. Come on. Look at it this way, he asks. You want to be a ghost in an attic all your life? And pain grins, and for the first time on this page... His eyes are no longer cast in shadow. His face looks normal and happy. Yes, you're right. It's part of growing up, I suppose. You always have to leave something behind you, Payne says as we get a close-up on Charles Rowland's body. Uh, on the next page, they're walking through the halls. There's a neat sense of forward momentum to these panels, three panels running vertically down the page, but in each one they're further from left to right. What about the rest of them? Do you think they'll ever have to go back to hell? Go back? I don't know. I think hell's something you carry around with you, not somewhere you go. They pass other ghosts as they walk through the halls. The headmaster is kneeling naked before Mother as she's telling him about the awful things his father did to her. Yeah, that's a really creepy image. We don't yeah. know what's going on there, but I don't like it. They pass a room where apparently Cheeseman is in the midst of raping Barrow. Yeah, I didn't like that either. They're and... doing the same things they always did. They're doing it to themselves. That's hell. We have Parkinson here yelling at a class. Payne chimes in, I don't think I agree. I think maybe hell is a place. 
but you don't have to stay anywhere forever. So where are we going now? I don't know. Away from here. I'm sick of this place. There's a whole world out there, Rowan says. I bet we've got a while before they sort this mess out and she comes back to get us. Payne introduces himself, saying Rowland can call him Edwin. Oh, fair enough. I'm Charles. And I like that as they pass through the gate, Payne tosses his hat up onto the fence post. Right. Rowland thinks that when they find out he's dead, his father will be relieved, and his mother won't be prejudiced since she's dead, too. We might as well make the most of it. Just take it as it comes. Death, you mean? Or life? Either. Both. Anyway, I think we've learned all we're going to at school. Now, let's see what life's got to offer us. All right. Now that is the last that we're going to see of those characters. Although, if you picked up issues of the limited series of the Dead Boy Detectives, you would see them again. Right. It's sort of a backdoor pilot, and it has a very backdoor pilot kind of feel to it as a story. Hmm. The obvious comparison I thought of when reading this issue is 24 Hours. Sandman number six. Really much... It didn't remind me that much of, of 24 Hours. Why? Well, we know that there's some big cosmic stuff going on. That time it was that Dr. Destiny had got the had got the ruby dreamstone and was using it to warp reality. Here it's that the dead have gotten out of hell and are back on the earth. Or I should say the damned, since the good ones aren't back. Right. And like that story, it's compressed into a small geographic area showing just a little slice of what's going on on earth at that time. Through the perspective of a new character. Well, and much like in 24 Hours, we barely get any Morpheus at all. He appears on one page. Yeah, that's right. He appears more as a reminder of his nature than anything else. He doesn't even show up to comment on these events like he did in 24 hours for half a page. Yeah, that's right. So I think this is very much the 24 hours of this story arc. We had some issues with that story when we read it. With 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That it was that it was mean, that it was, went on too long, that it was just just the evil part of the story without any context, unless you read the other issues around it. Yeah, and I don't think that we get anything quite that dark uh, mm-hmm. in this story arc so far. Yeah, well, I would say I enjoyed this one a lot more. Yeah, I agree. Part of that may be that it ends on a pretty optimistic note, even though the main character is a child who dies in the course of the story. Yeah, it's still pretty dark. We've got a schoolboy being tortured by other schoolboys. Yeah, but... yeah, who are also confirmed to have murdered another boy. Right. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I guess they were both murdered by the same dudes. Yeah, that's right. You know, but I think my actual problem with it was just the sort of backdoor pilotness of it, and I wasn't particularly interested in reading the series that this was launching into. Oh, really? You felt like it didn't accomplish enough in the context of Season of Mists that it was too off-topic? Right. I mean, we get a little bit of... We see that Death is, you know, running around trying to take care of this situation, but that's... That's really all, and we sort of saw that in the previous issue already. Yeah, well, I think we're supposed to infer, you know, that the dead coming back has effects like this everywhere. Yeah, I guess it's useful to see what it's like, you know, on Earth with the dead coming back, Mm -hmm. or the damned. But this this abandoned boarding school is unique in that there's more dead than there are living. Yeah, that's right. Which wouldn't be the case everywhere. Yeah, and it's a pretty creepy setting in and of itself. And then you introduce the undead. Yeah, 
you know, I think I would have been able to enjoy the mood and the sort of spookiness a little more if, okay. uh, if I didn't have such a problem with the art. Oh, really? Now, I liked the art a lot on this issue. Hmm. It was just a little too, uh, too cartoony for me. I suppose it's definitely that. It's got a lot of clean lines. It's definitely a departure from the style we're seeing in the rest of the story arc. Very exaggerated character designs. I see what you mean about cartoony, but for some reason it really worked for me. Did Matt Wagner do all the art for Dead Boy Detectives? I don't think so. Okay. I don't know, I feel like the simplicity of the art combined with the weirdness of the designs really contributes to the mood. It makes all of these characters more archetypes than characters. Hmm. Yeah, I think maybe that was part of what I didn't like about it, though. Okay. Was that they weren't individualized enough. You know, uh, a comparison that maybe we should talk about is between St. Hilarion's and Hogwarts. Okay. I mean, they're both English boarding schools in which there's magical stuff going on, which provokes... Both moments of wonder and moments of terror. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's true. The Hogwarts seems like a much nicer experience. I mean, in Hogwarts, they are you know prepared for weirdness to go on, and not that's not the case here. Well, yeah, I mean, Hogwarts gets very dark at times as well. Yeah, you know, especially like in the in the later books when it's being run by the Death Eaters. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, we hardly see any of that. That's deliberately kept off page. Yeah, and I think there's also a sort of resemblance between what Cheeseman, Skinner, and the third kid... And, Barrow? Uh, Barrow, yeah. And, you know, Draco Malfoy and his two hench goons. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I I have no idea if J.K. Rowling ever read this story, but it definitely plays on conceptions of British boarding schools. This is more of a boarding school is hell situation than a boarding school is a fantastic place one. Yeah, but like you pointed out, it ends with Edwin and Charles going off to, you know, enjoy their newfound freedom. Right, right. Having sort of learned something about life by dying. And in that way, it's sort of a companion to the issue, uh, two issues ago when we had Lucifer's whole conversation about why he was leaving hell, why he was quitting the job, that hell is something the damned want to exist. It's a service he's tired of providing. Right. What did you think of the damned singing hymns on Sunday? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I had not considered that, but that would have to be who was singing. (sighs) Yeah, that's sort of eerie. There's a lot of kind of cool, eerie ideas in this issue that I can recognize as cool ideas, even if I didn't particularly enjoy the way they were executed. Did it bother you the apparent anti-climax, essentially, that Rowland gets injured and then spends the next couple days unconscious and then dies? That nothing much happens after his second run-in with the old boys? Well, yeah, it did bother me, the anti-climax. He says it's only been six days, but, you know, six days since what? The first day that we see, the day that he flashes back to, Monday, six days ago, isn't his first day there. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't seem to be... It's not his first day there, and it's not the first day that the dead come back, because nothing weird happens on that day that he actually takes notice of. Right. I guess it's the first day that everyone else is on holiday, and the conversation that he has at lunch with the headmaster and Miss Gribble implies that they're just 
just setting up the situation where he's alone, the only student at the school over holiday. Yeah, well, fair enough. Not really a part of Season of Mists that much. Mm. In that way, maybe it's more sort of like... You compare it to the 24 hours of this story arc. Okay. But maybe it's sort of the men of good fortune of this story arc. Okay. It's like a break. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a side story with a a character that Damon wanted to write. It's definitely thematically tied in that it has to do with the nature of hell. And, That's true. And it takes place during this story arc. I understand there's also a death comic that takes place during this story arc and shows more of what she was up to. Yeah, well, we'll have to get into that. All right, well, when we return to Sandman, Morpheus has an awful lot of guests clamoring for his attention. But first, join us in two weeks as John Constantine continues to investigate the mystery of the fear machine and encounters the broken man. Hey, if you like our show, uh, what are they supposed to do if they like our show? <laughs> well, it'd be great if they check out their web... Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> check out... <laughs> Don't check out your website. Check out our check website. Check out our website. It's vertigons.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes and, believe it or not, show notes on every episode. All right. If you get our podcast through iTunes, it would be a big help for us if you would leave us a rating, preferably a five-star rating or a review. Remember that you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter at Vertiguys. That's right, at Vertiguys, facebook.com slash Vertiguys, and Vertiguys at gmail.com. We'd love to have your comments, questions. Yep, if you uh, write us a question, we might answer it on air. But as always, thanks just for listening. Thanks, everybody.